Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is Death, Then What? What Happens When People Die? In this sermon, I show the biblical evidence for heaven, hell, purgatory, ghosts, and reincarnation before revealing the overwhelming number of texts supporting the sleep of the dead. Focusing on John's gospel, I establish that, one, the dead are in their tombs asleep until they hear Christ's voice to awake. Two, that resurrection will not occur until the last day. Three, that Jesus called Lazarus asleep when he was really talking about him being dead. And four, that Mary was looking for Jesus, not merely his body, when she discovered the empty tomb. In the end, we must ask ourselves, why should there be a resurrection of the dead if no one is really dead? This morning I'll be sharing on the subject, death, then what? So I want to start by talking to you about the Berean challenge. The Berean challenge comes to us from Acts 17.11, and I have it up on the screen, or you can go in your Bible either way, but it it says there, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And what I'm going to be talking about today is the subject, death, then what? And I've come up with seven options which I have in your program notes. We'll look at those in a second. If there is an eighth, you know, it just didn't come to mind. You know, I, it's, I wasn't trying to exclude anybody. I was really trying to be as comprehensive as possible. And what I want to do is, is talk to you about the Berean Challenge for a moment and then talk about all the different options that, that at least I know of about what happens. And finally, then cover some scriptures, four main Uh, passages from the Gospel of John. So, I want to ask you a question. What color is a stop sign? Okay. So this is the stop sign at the end of our road. It says living hope underneath it, right? It's a red stop sign. What color is a street sign? All right. This is, uh, if you could see it, it says Old Niskiuna and Troy Schenectady Road right there. And they are uh, green signs. You can kind of see that that's green. And uh, what color is a yield sign? You sure about that? Since 1972, all yield signs have been red in America. And as evidence of that, even though we all think they're yellow, I, I have a picture of the yield sign right by the, uh, the circle. If you went that way on this road and, and you ended up at that circle, this, that's that sign right there. So yield signs are red. And uh, just about everybody I ask this question to, they all say yellow, even though we all see red signs everywhere we go. And so that's just a little uh, example of how we can be confused or have misconceptions about facts of reality. And so if, if, we, if we can collectively get the yield sign wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, what about other issues? So what I think about beliefs is that there, there are foundation. 
so you have these foundational beliefs, and they're kind of like the foundation a house is built on, you know, like cinder blocks or, or stone or, or whatever you build your house on. And then you build your life on your beliefs. And the thing is, we, we tend to focus a lot on, you know, like the, the color of the walls or the curtain here or what color the carpet is or whether we should have blue chairs or green chairs or red chairs or tan chairs. That's about all the colors I know. So that's what we, that's what, that's what we focus on, right? Do, do we ever have conversations about, you know, what about the foundation? You know, what, how, how is that? We don't even think about it, do we? It's just there, it holds it up, it's a good thing. And so it is with our lives. We tend to focus on the things we build on top of the foundational beliefs and not really take a, take a moment to examine these really deep beliefs. And this is one of these today, the subject of life after death, the subject of the afterlife. And so what I mean, I want to show an example of this, is if you believe that, you are, um, that your loved ones go to heaven at death, then you'll be much more likely to credit them. Well, if you believe they're watching over you and something good happens, you're going to be more likely to credit that to this deceased loved one, right? And uh, you might even be more likely to talk to them when they're not in the room, so to speak, which is what we call prayer. And you might start praying to the dead. Um, Or if you believe that uh, a loved one, this happened a lot in the 16th century, that loved ones are in purgatory, which is a a fiery torture where sins are purged until that person can get to heaven. That's the idea of purgatory. And so what people did is they would pay money and make offerings to shorten the time that their loved one was in purgatory. I I don't, I I hope they're not still doing that. But um, that was, that was a belief and people were, were genuine about this. And so what we believe does affect us. And if you believe the dead are ghosts that haunt old houses and that you know, make creaky sounds late at night, then uh, you, know, you, might, you might be likely to contact a medium on their birthday or their death day and try to, try to have a conversation with your deceased loved one, right? Isn't this what people do? Yeah. Isn't this what we see in the movies you know, and TV and, and whatnot that... You have these different options. And so it it does affect your your life. You know what I mean? And most of all, it affects us at at funerals. And when we actually go through the grieving process, this sort of thing really does come into the the focus. So when when someone challenges your belief in something, you're going to be uncomfortable. That's just, just the way it is. And the more passionately you believe in something, the more uncomfortable you're going to be when somebody says, no, it's really not like that. It's like this over here. And so we cannot, for that reason, fear to talk about or to investigate subjects that are important. Because really, if you think about it, there are two positive outcomes that would happen if you question one of your beliefs. Okay? Let's say you believed in Santa Claus. Okay, you're, you're one of the few, the proud, that made it through adulthood with this mythological uh, red-suited fat man coming down chimneys. And that's your, that's your belief, okay? And so, you know, let's say Amanda is, is talking to you, and she's like, you know, I don't really, I, I really doubt the Santa Claus things happen. You know, it just doesn't seem likely to me. You know, I work at the Edible Arrangements, and, and, and I never saw him there. I think he would definitely come there because we have some really great stuff. 
And she's giving you some logical argumentation against Santa Claus. And she's like, well, how does he fit down the chimney, etc. And uh, so if you were convinced by that and got rid of your Santa Claus belief, would you be better or worse for it? You'd be better because there really isn't a Santa Claus. And that was a false belief, right? So that's one possible outcome. However, if she questioned you and there really, let's say there really was a Santa Claus and there are explanations for all these things, then her getting you to question it will get you to dig down and find your answers and your reasons and you will be stronger in your belief. Okay? Now with Santa Claus, that is not likely to happen. But with other beliefs, it does happen. Either you, 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 you doubt your belief and you replace it with something better or you confirm your belief and you're stronger in it and less fearful when the subject comes up the next time, because now you know the reasons behind it. So there's really two positive outcomes, whether you, your belief is correct or not, uh, when, when you're willing to go through this. All right, so what I want to do is go through uh, some verses together with you. And these are verses... Now, I, I, there's not one of us in this room that believes all eight of these things. It's impossible. They contradict each other, uh, or seven, seven of these things. But I want to show you the verses that people would use to support them. Just anyhow, because I, I want to be fair to all the different options here. And, uh, you know, I, I realize that this can be a very sensitive subject of what happens when people die. And I just, I just ask that, that even, even if I'm wrong, that you would check your truth against my error. That you, that you would strengthen yourself against it and be willing to consider it. Of course, I don't think I'm wrong. And... Um, Neither is anybody else. But the Bible is our standard. So that's why I'm putting verses, not logical argumentation, uh, but just verses underneath each one of these. So the first one there says heaven, uh, which is the idea of beholding God, also called the beatific vision. Uh, some people, now this is not Christian, but some people, I saw this in Lion King, say, uh, I saw, or no, this is another movie, uh, some cartoon, uh, Space Dogs, uh, that their deceased loved one becomes a star. I don't know where they get that from. Uh, or they become an angel, or somehow they're watching over you. So this incorporates both Christian and non-Christian versions of heaven. And so we've got a few verses that support it there. Uh, three, four, five, six verses or so. The next one here is the idea of hell, that uh, at the moment of death you are transferred to a fire where you're tortured forever. Here are some uh, the scriptures that uh, people use to support that belief. The third one is purgatory. Uh, this was fun to research, and uh, I was able to find a couple of uh, apologetic websites, and they gave me these verses for supporting the doctrine of purgatory. The last one there is not in our Bible, so I don't know if we want to count that. Uh, but even if you check it out, I think you'll be surprised to see it doesn't support purgatory at all. But uh, I shouldn't say that because I'm trying to be fair. All right, uh, number four here is ghosts that live on earth without a body. This is incredibly popular in our society, isn't it? The idea that the dead are among us and that they're, mess, they're messing with stuff. They aren't like good dead are, are in this belief system. They're all, they're all somewhat nefarious, you know, somewhat like out to get you or somebody that wronged them or whatever. Um, and uh, I was able to find some verses on that, you know, some different scriptures. And we, we could talk about these uh, some other time, uh, like when they saw uh, Jesus on the water and said, oh, it's a, it's a spirit, you know, so they must have believed in Walking or the Witch of Endor, that's a juicy one, huh? Uh, all right, then the next one, reincarnation. I don't know if you could see Oh, you can see it, good. Reincarnation is the idea that at death your memory is wiped and you're reborn. 
And actually, there's more on that than uh, the other ones, uh, which is really fascinating. See, the Bible, you could find supporting verses for any idea because it's just such a massive collection of literature and words that you can, you can just about come up with anything and support it. Um, but that's not how we do Bible study, is it? We don't come up with an idea and then find verses to, to bolster it. That's not the, the right, that's, that's backwards, right? You, you, read, you read the Bible and then you get your beliefs out of it. Um, okay, and then we have gone, the idea that this is sort of like the atheist perspective. I don't know what else to call it. I just call it gone. Their thoughts, feelings, experience, etc., are gone forever. You know, the, the idea of uh, just annihilation at the moment of death. And I've, I've found a few verses on that. And then, uh, you know, you always put your, your own view last, right? So I put <laughs> sleep here, which is uh, unconscious but able to be resurrected. And uh, we have some verses here on that one. And... Uh, So if we compare them all together, <laughs> it's kind of an embarrassment of riches, you know. And so uh, if we're, if we're going to use the Bible as a standard for an idea, and you have, after, you know, trying to find verses on all these different things, this kind of proportion, may I suggest that we lean to the right? You know what I mean? And, uh, and, and take a look at that belief. So let's go to uh, John chapter 5 together. And I want to cover these four main scriptures with you. John 5, 6, 11, and 20. You know, there are just, as you can see, so many verses on this subject. And we, we've uh, shared about this subject plenty of other times from, the, uh, fr- from this church. But uh, I don't know if we've done the focus on John. So I just figured I'd focus on John just to give it a new uh, angle. And so the first one is John five twenty six. And uh, this is where Jesus is speaking. He's uh, in dialogue with the Pharisees. And it says in John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he has given to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then 28 is really where I want to focus here. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. So verses 28 and 29 are really the focus there. And it says that there are people who are in the tombs and that this is, we know, is talking about He says an hour is coming, right? We know the hour that he's talking about is when Christ comes back. When he comes back is when this occurs, right? We know that from other scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, that this is when Jesus comes back, those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now, can dead people hear? Can asleep people hear? I mean, if you're really asleep. You ever do that, like when you first start to wake up, the first sense that comes online is hearing, and you just, has anybody ever had that happen where you're just lying there and you're like, I, I don't want to be awake, and you're hearing what everyone else, I've got three kids, so there's a lot of chaos, <laughs> there's a lot of potential chaos going on, and so the idea that, um, you know, you're hearing all, the, all these voices, but, you know, you're, everything else is asleep, 
but you're hearing. Anyhow, that happens to me sometimes. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is dead asleep, okay? The sleep of the dead. And uh, so Jesus says, those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Dead people cannot hear his voice. Therefore, this would be a what? This would be a miracle, right? If a dead person who's been dead a thousand years hears someone's voice, something is going on here. And that's what's going to happen. They're going to hear his voice. Jesus' voice is going to wake the dead. And they're going to come forth. And then there are these two choices. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, the dead are in their tombs asleep. However, when they hear his voice, they will awaken. This is resurrection. Now, whatever we believe sleep means. Now, there are different views on that. Some people lean more one way or more another way. Whatever we believe sleep means when it comes to the sleep of the dead, it can't mean awake. Okay? So whatever, you know, little fine points we want to make about it here or there, it, if, if you're unconscious, you can't be what? Conscious. If you're asleep, you're not awake. And so if Jesus says those who are in the tombs are asleep until they hear his voice and then they awaken and come forth to the resurrection, then we can't have people having conversations or being aware, awake, of different things going on around them. This was brought home to me the first time I had my wisdom teeth taken out. Has anybody had one of these experiences where you get knocked out? Anybody? There's a few, few people. Okay. Uh, I remember it well, not the part where I was knocked out, but right before and right afterwards. My wife uh, was there with me, and uh, we, I, I sat in this chair, and they, they pumped me up with something. I don't know what it was. It, it was potent, that's for sure. And they had me count down you know, from like 10. I don't know what number I got to, but it wasn't very far. I got to like 9. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, I got like a few numbers in, and then, uh, and then they said to me, you can go wait in the other room. And I said, okay. So I go wait in the other room, and I'm thinking, you know, this is going to, it must take a while for it to, you know, maybe it takes 20 minutes or a half hour. I don't know. And my wife came in, and she says to me, how did it go? I said, what do you mean, how did it go? They didn't do anything yet. And then I start feeling around in my mouth with my tongue, and I've got gauze all over the place, and I'm like, they did it! She's like, yeah, they did it. And that was my experience of, of you know, being unconscious. Let's go to John chapter 6. John six thirty eight. So the dead are in their tombs asleep, and it's not the kind of sleep that, that when, when you kind of wake up and hear things, and it's not the kind of sleep where you're having all kinds of dreams. It's the kind of sleep like I had when my wisdom teeth were being taken out. One moment I was there, the next moment I had no recollection at all. It wasn't even a second later, as far as my experience was, there I was being told to go in the other room. However, I don't know how long passed, maybe an hour or something, I don't know. Like I said, I was, <laughs> I was asleep. So I used to do this when I was a kid, too, in the, in the, the car trips, long car trips. You know, you just go to sleep, and you wake up, and you're there. It's the best kind of time travel, isn't it? Uh, John chapter 6, verse 38. 
Jesus uh, repeats himself four times here. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on what day? He was going to raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on what? The last day. Jesus is saying he is going to raise them up on the last day. Verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling at him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on what? The last day. Three times over, right? Verse 39, verse 40, verse 44. On the last day. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to raise them up on the last day. That's the plan. The plan is that he would not lose any, right? Back to verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. It's God's will. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And so even if somebody dies, it doesn't count as a loss for Jesus, right? It's, you're still not lost because he's going to raise you up on the last day, all right? You might be temporarily separated, right? But you're going to ra- be raised up on the last day. Skip to verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You've got to love the Gospel of John and the way Jesus speaks there. And I will raise him up on what? The last day. I, I don't really want to get into all the details of the manna speech here and how Jesus talks about manna coming down from heaven and how the, their fathers had eaten this manna and it preserved them and, and helped them to be sustained in the wilderness and how Jesus is like that manna today for us and how if we eat his flesh and drink his blood metaphorically, that we would be able to uh, be sustained. My focus here is instead on the last day. He says, we're gonna, I will raise him up. Notice that Jesus takes credit for being the resurrector. God has given him. We read that in John 5. Because he's the son of man, he has given him, God has life in himself, and he has conferred that upon Jesus that he would have life on himself, in himself as well, because he is the son of man. And he is the, the resurrector. Jesus is the resurrector. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. Which leads me to John 11. Okay? Uh, Before we go to John 11, four times over, Jesus clearly teaches that he will raise the dead on the last day, not the day of their death. That might be their last day, but that's not the last day. There's a difference there. All right, John 11. This is my favorite one by far. And we've, we've shared this scripture a couple of times, so I'm not going to um, cover it in detail, but just enough to focus on the aspect of what Jesus says. This is the incident with Lazarus. I was, I was thinking about how, how people uh, conceive of uh, like medieval, medieval cosmology, where you had a, a triple-decker universe. You know, so, all right, maybe... Maybe above the red curtain here, the wall, let's call that heaven, okay? And then the red curtain we'll call earth, and that's where we all are, right? 
And then under the earth, on the ground here, is what? For medieval thinkers. That's the realm of hell. I mean, they literally believed if you, if you dug down, you'd get to hell. Uh, there, was, there was this one guy, when he was, uh, he was exploring, and I think he found the Amazon River, and he thought he found um, uh, the Via Purgativa, the, the way to Purgatory, or Purgatory Mountain or something. Uh, I mean, they really believed it was, it was on earth somewhere that you would, you would find purgatory and you'd find hell, and that if you got in a, a, a spaceship or something, you would go up into heaven. Uh, and this, this was a, a, a belief that thrived during the Middle Ages, influenced mostly by Aristotle and Ptolemy, two non-Christians. Uh, but they were the biggest thinkers in the past that people were building their beliefs upon. And so you read, read your Bible that way, that there's a triple-decker universe, and then you go down and you go up. Pretty simple, right? But I, my, my, my reading of the Bible is not, you know, if you, I think if you honestly read, especially the New Testament, it's not like that at all. It's not a spatial issue. It's not an issue of where you are in space. Like if I was a little lower in space, I'd be in hell. And if I was a little higher in space, I'd be in heaven. For, for, from a biblical perspective, we've got to turn that thing on its side, okay? Because the, the way the Bible talks about it is, with respect to time. You have the past, you have the present, you have the future, right? You have the original paradise, right? When was that? That was, that was in the beginning, right? Where was that? That was on earth, right? So it's on the same planet that we stand on right now is where that paradise was. Isn't that interesting? But it was just in time, different, right? So you have that original, and then you have the fallen state, and that's where we are right now. And then what do they say about it in the future? They call it the age to come. They always call it the age to come. They say this present age, and then you have the age to come. When the age to come happens is when Jesus comes back and you have judgment. Right? He said, they will hear my voice. Those who are in the tombs will hear my voice. They will come forth. Those who have done good, good deeds to the resurrection of life. Those who have done bad deeds to the resurrection of judgment. Right? And so... Jesus is talking about something that happens in time. It's all about waiting. It's all about time. And so you have the idea of these, these you know, different judgment. And, you know, there, there, is a, there is a fiery hell mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's just not, it's just not here yet. You know, that's, that's to come. That's part of the judgment of how God is going to set everything straight. All right, John 11. You guys ready? This he said, John eleven eleven. This he said, and after he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Wow. Look at that verse. Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him out of sleep. Disciples, totally clueless. Right? Verse 12. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. <clears throat> Is that funny? Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is what? Lazarus is dead. So when Jesus thinks about Lazarus being dead, he says Lazarus has fallen asleep. And when Jesus thinks about bringing him back, right, raising him from the dead, he says, I go to what? Awaken him, right? This, to me, is clear in the mind of Jesus. So I think it needs to be clear in our minds as well. Verse 15. I am glad for your sakes 
that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may also so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found he had been dead in the tomb four days. I'm not sure how to take Thomas in verse 16. Uh, it's either a very courageous statement, like, let's go die with him. Or it's totally sarcastic, like, oh, let's go die with him. That sounds like a great idea. You know, I, I, I'm not really sure how to take that. But the fact is, they went. In verse 17, when they had gotten there, how long had it been? Four days. Four days. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. I mean, just thinking for a moment here about the tragedy of losing your brother. You know, he's not a very old man here that, that we know of. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a family. I'm not sure exactly how old they were, but they were friends with Jesus. And, um, you know, there's just incredible sadness that Martha and Mary must have had at this time. Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. So Martha goes out, but Mary stays. Martha then said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's like a knife in his chest, right? If you had been here, only Jesus, you had been here, you could have healed him, right? Because people saw Jesus heal people all the time. And I'm sure the first time you saw Jesus heal somebody, it was like, whoa. But after a while, if you spend enough time with him, you'd be like, yeah, he heals people. You know what I mean? That's just what he does. You know, he, he's got, yeah, that's what he does. He'll cast out a demon. He'll heal somebody. And uh, if you're a Pharisee, you're about to get rebuked. So watch it. You know, I mean, if you hung out with Jesus enough, that's what you would see over and over again. So she knew in her heart, if he had been there, he could have healed him. Lazarus could have been healed. But, of course, he's dead now, so what are you going to do? Jesus said to her, verse 23, or I'm sorry, verse 22, Even now I know, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. See, that's the hope. It's, it's future. Notice the timing of the tense. He doesn't say your brother is now in heaven. He doesn't say your brother is now in hell. That would be really bad. <laughs> he says he will, in the future, in the age to come, rise again. That's the hope that Jesus, uh, or that, yeah, Jesus puts out to her. Except he doesn't say in the age to come, does he? He just says sometime in the future. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the what? There it is. Even she knew it, right? That was a common understanding around at the time, that the resurrection happens at the last time, at the last day. When the judgment occurs, the resurrection happens. So Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will rise at the resurrection on the last day. It's not helping me right now, Jesus, right? I mean, it might give you some comfort now, but, it, you know, he's in the tomb. That's the problem here. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. <laughs> wow. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus says. I am the resurrection. She's like, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. I am the resurrection. What? 
Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, like I showed you in the verses before, Jesus really knew. He was absolutely convinced. He didn't question it. He said, I will raise them up on the last day. The Father has given me these people to take care of. I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus knows his job. But his job is at his discretion as well. You know what I mean? And if he wants to raise somebody up before the last day, you know, he is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. Maybe that's where we get that yes, Lord from. We had that song, right, Jay? Yeah, right. Yes, Lord. I have believed. I never knew what that meant. Maybe that's what it means. I just felt like I was, you know, like it's a, a, uh, something that gets you to say yes a lot. It's a sales technique, right? Don't you uh, ask a question. It's like, is it, is it true your name is... Jared Crowfoot, you know, yes, it is. You know, are you this? Yes, yes, yes. Do you want to buy this magazine? Yeah. Well, I guess I have to say yes. I said yes six times already. Um, and so that song, you know, maybe that is to get all of you to agree with the preacher. Uh, she said, yeah. that's a sidetrack. Sorry about that. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Christ. I have believed you are the Christ, the Son of God even he who comes into the world. My goodness, this woman, her brother is dead. He's in a tomb. She's weeping. She's mourning. All her family and friends are there. They've already had the funeral, but the days of mourning are still in, in action, right? And Jesus is there, and he's talking, he's talking crazy. I am the resurrection. And he says, do you believe this? She says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Basically saying, yeah, I believe it. Now that's faith. When your brother's in the ground, that's faith. Four days. That's faith right there. Let's skip down to verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That must have been something. I would love to hear Jesus yell. Lazarus, come... Now, didn't we read in John... What was it, five? Many of those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Right? Here's a guy in a tomb. And what does he do? He obeys the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus says, hey, come forth. Come here. You know, sometimes I can't even get my kids to obey that <laughs> command. And they're alive. Come over here. Right? Jesus says it to a dead man. And... Verse 44, the man who had died came forth. He obeyed, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, cut him loose, right? unbind him and let him go. It's just, just such a beautiful, beautiful scripture. When Jesus spoke of Lazarus' death, he said he was asleep and that he was going to awaken him. Are we clear on that? Yeah. And yet he was really talking about death and resurrection. So he, Jesus says sleep but he's talking about death. Jesus says, awaken, but he's talking about resurrection. Did Jesus tear Lazarus away from bliss in heaven to return to this old earth? Could you imagine that? Lazarus, you know, finally gets released from the body. He's enjoying the delights of heaven, reunited with all his relatives. And from, 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 from way below, a voice comes, and it's kind of like, rips him down. You're not done yet, boy. Gosh, that... That really would, would 
taint this, this uh, scripture because the scripture is beautiful. What's beautiful about it? He was gone. He was dead. He was, he was asleep. And then he came back to life, right? It was a blessing Jesus did for him, not uh, tearing him away from heaven. No, he brought him back to life and woke him up. All right, the last scripture to look at is in John chapter 20. This one we have to, we have to use a little bit of investigative exegesis. You guys ready for that? Exegesis just, it just means interpretation or, or understanding what you read, basically. Uh, so John chapter 20, verse 11, tells us about Jesus when he was in the tomb. All right, so this is kind of a depressing subject. We're doing a lot of like graves and tombs and funerals here. But it's exciting, too, because when, as Christians, we talk about death, we can't help but also talk about resurrection right at the same time, right? Because one is the question, the other is the answer. In John twenty eleven, it says, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, between verse 12 and verse 13, there's, there's something I want to show you. And that is this whole way of talking about dead people that we have is, is, is more narrowly restricted than what they had. Okay, So when we talk about dead people, we always talk about the body. Always. We talk about the body. And the news reports, they never say a 50-year-old man was found dead on the side of the road. They say the body of a 50-year-old man was found on the side of the road dead. Right? It's a very subtle little difference, but we are, we are conditioned to always think of the dead person as a body. And that the person is not, that's not the person. That's just their body. Right? That's the way we're conditioned to think in our current age, our current culture. They didn't have that restriction. They'll say the body in one sentence, and they'll say Jesus in the next sentence. You see what I mean? So, because it's not like Jesus is, 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 is gone, like sitting up on a hill or, or flying up to heaven or something. That is Jesus. Uh, so in verse 12 again, it says, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Right? That's the way we talk about it. And then in verse 13, they say, what's wrong? And they're like, she, they've taken away the body of my Lord. No, that's not what it says, is it? It's a very subtle little difference. But she says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid it. No, him. Right? It's the person as well as the body. There's no distinction that they're making. We always just say, talk about the body, the body, the body, as if the soul is somewhere else. For them, it's all, it's all there. <laughs> okay? Verse 14, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Hello. And did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? We talked about how Jesus said to his mother, woman. It was a normal way to address people. Okay? It wasn't some sort of like sarcastic, like, woman. What are you crying for? No, it, it was quite polite, actually. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus, I mean, what, what's he doing here? What is he doing here? Ask her why she's crying. She's outside his tomb. I think that's just how Jesus liked to work. 
I think he liked to work inductively rather than just like come out and say, look, I'm Jesus. I was dead. I'm alive. I know you're crying, but just settle down. Instead of doing it like that, he's like, you know, what are you, what are you weeping? You know, when he goes to heal the blind man, he says, you know, what, do you, what would you like me to do for you? <laughs> right? He doesn't, he doesn't push, he does, you know, because, I'm, you know, you know how we are, right? We, we want to figure it out on our own, right? And then if we figure it out on our own, you know, with some guidance, we'll have stronger conviction. But if somebody just tells us, we might believe it or might not, but it's not going to be as strong. So Jesus is like, hey, what's wrong? You look like you're upset there, sweetheart. Uh, he didn't say sweetheart. He said woman. Sir, sir, <laughs> sir, if you had, she thought he was the gardener. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, which tells me what? That she had... <laughs> She had embraced him. She was grabbing him, right? Stop clinging to me. Uh, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Okay? Verse 17 is just chuck full of theological implication. I mean, he says to her, I have not yet ascended to my Father, which is huge because it tells me that even Jesus didn't go to heaven when he died. What? I mean, surely if one person would go to heaven when they died, it would be the perfect, sinless Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, and Savior of the world. That would be the one. He says, I haven't ascended to my Father. Earlier in John, John 3.13, Jesus said, uh, no one has ascended into heaven. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven. And then when he dies and comes back through resurrection, he says... Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, Jesus does go to heaven. All right? I'm not trying to d- disagree with that at all. It's just not until about 40 days later. And so, and then he says, I ascend to my Father, your Father, and my God, and your God, which tells me that Jesus' God is the same as Mary's God, and that his Father is the same as her Father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. There's a gospel song there. And that he had said these things to her. And so, just uh, my last point here. Mary looked for Jesus, not merely his body. That's what I was trying to say before. She looked for the person and his body because she's not making that distinction like we do. Jesus clearly says he had not gone to the Father in death. If Jesus did not go to heaven at death, then why should we think we will? So, and then I have my question at the end there. Why should there be a resurrection of the dead if no one is really dead? So I encourage you to look into this. If you're unsure, if what I'm saying up here sounds crazy, look into it, right? Look into the scriptures because either one of two things will happen. Either your wrong belief, you'll be able to get rid of it, or your right belief, you'll be able to strengthen it. Either way, it's a positive outcome if you take the time to do it. And then for those of us who are already sure of it, which is probably most of us in this room, we we need to find ways to talk to our friends and loved ones about this and our families because this is a really hard subject. And you know what the time is when we start thinking about talking to people about it? The wrong time, right? When somebody dies and now we're sitting in the funeral and the preacher's putting them in heaven. preacher always puts them in heaven. 
And it's like, you know, is that, is that really the best time to talk to somebody? Well, sometimes it might be, you know. It depends on the situation, right? Um, so we need to find ways, ways to do it. And I'm, I'm convinced that this, this, this doctrine, the sleep of the dead, this doctrine is, is critical for straightening out many other doctrines. Because doctrines don't stand on their own. Our beliefs support each other and hold each other up, right? And so if you believe in immediate judgment at the moment of death, then that's what really matters to you. But if you believe you're, you're out of it, you're asleep, you're unconscious, right? Until this moment happens when Jesus comes back, suddenly Jesus coming back is the important thing that gets your focus. Suddenly the kingdom of God is, is, is your hope and what you look forward to rather than the moment of death. You know what I mean? And so this seemingly insignificant or, or less significant belief really does bubble out and affect other things. Um, and so let's, let's just pray to close out. Dear Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to, to share in your truth. Father, all truth is yours. Whatever we believe is not going to change what is really true and what you know to be true. We just ask that you would help us to think your thoughts after you, that we would be good Bereans who don't accept or reject a message outright, but instead check it against the scriptures to see whether it's so. We ask that you would help us to be the kind of people that are willing to talk to others about important issues, but to do it with gentleness and respect. I pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.